Well, this is Alex Grant. Today's episode is brought to you by my new comic, Journey into Mexico, with Latin American artist Sebastián Guidobono, following the adventures of young T-Hax Tabaris, who wields the power of... El Fuego! During a very politically hot time in 1830s Mexico. Available in both English and Spanish on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, Comixology, and other book outlets such as IndiePlanet.com. Cheers, and let's get started. Welcome again to the Comic Book Historians Podcast with Alex Rand and Jim Thompson. Today we have part two of the Eric Larson interview. We're going to go over Marvel and the beginning of the Image Revolution. I had one more DC story I wanted to go back to. You did a Legion of Superheroes issue, which I'm a big Legion fan, but you seem I like did the part of one. I already part of one. It was a fill-in issue they needed to get that book caught up, and they had three different short stories with three different artists. You did the block section, though, right? Yeah, did- I did that. Again, it was one of those situations where timing was was everything. I was sharing a studio with Al Gordon, who is the inker of the book. And so he could recommend me when it came to that. Okay. He inked more than one thing for you, didn't he? I noticed yeah, his name coming up. Quite a few different things here <laughs> and there over the years. I thought we worked pretty well together, so... I see. And Block seemed like a character that was kind of made for you. I mean, it, it did go to your strong points. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. He's, he's yeah. knocking down walls all the time and such. You know, it's like I don't really remember it that much. My only real lasting thing on that was I remember designing a villain for that story that Keith Giffen killed the next issue because he couldn't figure out how to turn him. Right. Because I had drawn him from like one angle. And it was like, <laughs> I didn't, I'm sorry that I killed your guy, but I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> it's like, all right, whatever. So when you were doing The Punisher, were you trying to get off of The Punisher while you were doing it or trying to get some other book instead? I was always pitching stuff and I had pitched Terry Cavanaugh. Somehow I get hooked up with him on Marvel Comics Presents. Mm-hmm. He's the editor of that. And at some point I had pitched to him writing and drawing a Nova serial for Marvel Comics Presents, mm-hmm. and it was approved. And so when it got approved, I was like, well, I want to be writing and drawing my own stuff, so mm-hmm. let me jump on that. And so I, I left the book, and the editor was not super pleased with me leaving the book so abruptly, but... This is my big chance to write and draw my own stuff, and I wanted to do that, so off I went. And then once I had left the book and was supposed to do it, then they're like, oh, no, we're actually going to do something different with Nova in New Warriors. Your story doesn't really work with that, so I'm sorry, but we can't do it. So you found yourself without an ongoing book. Yeah, suddenly I didn't have a gig, and so Terry came up with that Excalibur serial there you go in Marvel Comics presents and so that's why it's like I don't I don't read Excalibur I'm not a huge fan of Excalibur but I need work right so, <laughs> so I'll do it that's yeah. why I ended up doing Excalibur and then the Excalibur stuff actually is what ended up getting me more Spider-Man I think because uh, the editor of, of Spider-Man had seen what I was doing on that and it's like oh let me try you out on 
doing some more Spider-Man. Right. Who was the editor at that point? That was Jim Salakrup. Yeah, Salakrup. That's right. Yep. And then before Jim talks to you about the Spider-Man, when that Thor issue finally got published with him fighting the Hulk, that came out in 87, and Vince Coletta inked it, right? Yeah. He had inked it way earlier. So uh-huh. I, had, I had seen that thing and had had it in my possession as, you know, I had Xerox. Oh, not a comic yet. Uh-huh. So, yeah, that took the wind out of my sails. Right. I was just like, oh, my God, this, this is the worst <laughs> thing ever. This is terrible. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was going to say, because it didn't have that same feel of your other stuff. I had a feeling that uh, the inking is responsible for that. So you were disappointed then about that inking job. because Yeah, it was a, uh-huh. you know, years later, I look back at it and, and think it's pretty neat just mm-hmm. because I'm being inked by Vinny and it's the story was scripted by Stan. So in this kind of cool way, I'm subbing for Jack. That's right. Classic yeah. lineup. And that would be the last issue of Thor that Vinny would ever ink. And yeah. the last issue of Thor that Stan would ever script. Right. So it was like, in that respect, it's kind of cool. Yes. And with the action and foreshortening that and yeah, the blowouts yeah. in your comics, it makes sense that you'd kind of carry that torch from Jack in a sense. Yeah. Well, it was that part of it was kind of awesome. Yeah, so. that is that is awesome. And I got that vibe, too, from it. I was like, oh, I think this is like the end of those guys, but the beginning of Eric in a way. All right. OK, Jim, go ahead I, with Spider-Man. So- at the time that you're working on Excalibur and all of this, Todd McFarlane is sort of becoming on fire on Amazing Spider-Man, right? People are starting to really notice his his yeah. whips and, and his work. Did you know him at this point? Were you all in the offices together? None of us shared an office together at any point. Todd was living in Canada and then later moved to Portland. And now he's in Arizona. But I had met... Todd, when he was working on Infinity Incorporated, I think Mm -hmm. he had just done a quickie fill-in on Spitfire and the Troubleshooters, which was his first Marvel gig. They needed a fill-in, and Todd said he could do it in three days. So he did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That thing out. And then that kind of opened up some doors for him. And so he, he went from doing his regular gig over at DC to doing whatever he could get his hands on at Marvel. So I knew him. When I had done the fill-in on Spider-Man, I actually was friends with him at that point and had gone over to his house or apartment. And there was a character, Solo, that was introduced in that story. Right, mm-hmm. right. Well, I was the guy who first visualized Solo, and he appeared in 324, but Todd was still working on 323. Mm. And so when I went and visited Todd, I was sitting there penciling in his costume. <laughs> oh, that's know, cool. Oh, that's right. I really places. heard that. Because it's like, so I can help him out. I like Solo when he came out. I remember seeing that on the stands. So there were a few little things in 323 where I could point to pe- different panels and say, oh, yeah, I went in and repenciled some of this and then Todd inked it and stuff like that. There's, right. Often in comics, there ends up being a lot of those little things that go on between creators that you aren't even aware of. You look years later and go, yeah, that panel always looked funny to me. It's like, oh yeah, that's because the Phoenix story where in the X-Men, there was one of those where Al Gordon inked some faces in there. And when you're, when you're aware of it and you're looking at it, it's like, 
oh yeah, these faces don't look like the rest of it. This looks a yeah. little, little out of place. That's interesting. Right. That is cool. And then you find out later why. That's yeah, that you cool. find out later why or you don't. In that Excalibur serial, there's a panel or a figure that Bob Smith inked. And it was like, I pulled it out. I could see it immediately when Terry said, hey, Bob inked something in here. It's like, is it this? <laughs> but most regular people just reading comics, I don't think they're that aware of situations like that when somebody will come in and do a little something. Mm-hmm. So you took over Amazing Spider-Man with 329. You're not writing it. David Michelin is writing it. Michelinie. Michelinie is writing it at this point. And were you under pressure to make it look as much like Todd McFarlane as you could, or was it just go in there and be yourself? It was go in there and be yourself. Uh But when I had followed Steve Lytle on the Doom Patrol and did whatever the hell I wanted to, the reaction from fans was horrific. Because it was like, oh, my God, what's going on here? This is terrible. (laughs) And it was such a strong negative reaction that I thought coming on Spider-Man, well, Todd McFarlane is 20 times the fan favorite that Steve Lytle was or would ever be. I would better do my best to try and ease in the transition here. So, And I'd also, at some point... John Romita Jr. had followed Paul Smith on an X-Men thing. Sure. And he yeah. just was like, well, I'm drawing the second half of a story that Paul had started. I'm going to try and ease into it. Right. And so that was kind of where I was thinking of on this was, I'm just going to play this as safe as humanly possible and not come in there and go, hey, here's my thing, kids. Right. Go fuck right. yourselves. You know, <laughs> <it's> like, <laughs> well, at the time, it felt like a pretty smooth transition for me as I was collecting in a real time. And I think John Ramita Sr. did the same with Ditko. Like there was a transition yeah. going from Ditko to Ramita Sr. So, yeah, that's a good point. He did try to look a little bit. I mean, I think he failed, but he tried to look like Ditko. Right. Uh, in yeah, the well, in those, I, mean, those I, I think that's the case here, too, where I look at it and go, I didn't pull it off at all as far as i'm concerned when i look at it i don't think it's a successful transition in terms of looking like todd but somebody thought it worked all right i mean (laughs) yeah and i favor your mary jane over todd's because that was the first you hit me at just the right age where that was the first that's uh, the beauty of that (laughs) people just right you hit me just right with that one but at that time but uh, that was the first comic book crush i kind of had as I was reading comics. So yeah, that was the Mary Jane. I remember the panel too. So. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Thank now, you. Thank you. Yes. Now, Spider-Man, you had read Spider-Man as a kid, but you were more Kirby influenced, certainly than Ditko influenced. Was this a, a title that you really wanted to work on a lot or was it just, it was no. a, it was Spider-Man. So you're certainly going uh, to take it. I, I understood that it was a good gig. But I was always more of a Kirby guy. I mean, I like Ditko's work, but I didn't consider him a, a major influence. Mm-hmm. And so it, this was just a struggle for me to do the book. And I just got out all the Ditko stuff I could and had it out there and was just looking at it, trying to 
pick things and, okay, what can I do to make this look like Steve? There was a fair amount of that. And especially once Randy Emberlin came on board as, as anchor, I think we're kind of able to do more Ditko-y looking stuff than I did earlier than that. So let's talk about the villains a little bit, because that's, I think, what Ditko gave us as much as anything. We're one of the best rogues galleries in comics. And oh, yeah. you go in there and you're getting to play instantly with all of the big ones. Who was easy for you to do? Who do you think you contributed, like actually really up them a little bit? Or what was your experience with different villains of those early Spider-Mans you were doing? Well, my favorite was, I like Dr. Octopus in terms of just visually what yeah. I was able to bring to him. At that point, he had just been this pudgy guy in tights. <laughs> And it's like, you know, you don't put a fat guy in tights. It's, it's just cruel and unusual punishment for everybody involved. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't, it wasn't Ditko's fault because he had him in that lab coat, which he liked to do because he did that with the lizard too. But you put Doc Ock in a suit, didn't you? Yeah, and that was not, none of that was asked for at all. But what I really wanted to do when I was working on the book was to restore some of those villains to their former luster yeah and that was more my goal than anything and you can see in there at some point there was a transition on my part where i made that as a change if you look at 327 there's a panel that has a kingpin in it and he's just like a ball i just draw him as this big ball <laughs> and it's and it was kind of following in my mind at least what sinkevich had right. done with him And it was like, all right, I'm just going to have fun with this guy. And then later on, when I'm drawing Kingpin, he's much more formidable looking. And that just came about with me really internalizing the whole thought process and going, well, what benefits Marvel more? Having this guy be a big cartoon character or having him be a formidable villain? Right. And once I got it, got into that mindset of let's make these villains as awesome as they can be rather yes. than make yeah. fun of them, then I was able to do some cool stuff with some of those villains and trying to pump things up in visually and make them neater looking and make them more powerful looking or, you know, whatever. Yeah, and and I love the Dr. Octopus that you did. I think it's my favorite because his tentacles are all over the place. Yeah, the yeah. tentacles are great. It was fun to play with that. And I mean, amazing. <laughs> I mean, it really shows, like, Spider-Man's acrobatics are, like, tested to their utmost limit when you were doing that Dr. Octopus. Yeah, and it was fun to be able to play with that. I also like that most often he's not really paying much attention to Spider-Man at all. He's, like pouring himself a cup of coffee just doing any other thing because it's like you're so beneath me and i don't really need to do anything (laughs) that's right i remember that and and watching doc ock punching back and forth with spider-man was always a stupid concept because he's an old scientist guy i mean he's got these great weapons why is he using his fist ever yeah there is no point in that at that point, I was sharing the studio with a couple of different people. One of them is an artist named Pete McDonald. And Pete was doing commercial art. And he had done, do you remember what color forms? Sure. You know those are? He did the Dick Tracy color forms because the, the Warren Beatty movie was out around that time. Mm-hmm. And so he got all these 
character drawings of all the various Dick Tracy villains. And that was kind of what influenced giving Dr. Octopus a suit, seeing all those gangsters in their suits. It was like, oh, I'm going to give Spider-Man a suit. That's where that came about. And while you were doing this, were you feeling more and more like you wanted to write your own stories, even on on Spider-Man? I wasn't necessarily thinking I should do more Spider-Man stuff. A lot of the jobs that I got were just jobs that were available. Right. They weren't necessarily things that I sought out to do. And that's just the way of the world. Very seldom do you actually, or at least for me, very seldom did I actually end up with assignments that I really wanted. <laughs> it would just be, all right, this is this is available. You want to do it? Yeah, yeah, right. it did seem like that. Now, what did you think when they told you you're going to do a Captain Universe Spider-Man? Did you know what that was? I knew what it was because I I read everything. Mm-hmm. Ah, were you actively enjoying comics at that point and reading everybody else's work? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. So. Oh, that is awesome. I don't hear that too often, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I was buying and reading everything. So, were you buying DC stuff too? Sure. I mean, that's interesting because Marvel had the the artists that were really game changers. But DC was where I was. I was in law school at that point. And I was reading all the Vertigo stuff and all the more and then Morrison and all of that. And that was also game changing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was reading Alan Moore stuff when he was working on Warrior magazine. Yeah. Oh, sure. So I knew all the Marvel Man and for Vendetta and, and all that other stuff. So yeah. when he came over and was working on Swamp Thing, that store was ready for him. We yeah. knew this guy is is a badass. And uh-huh. so they stocked up on that book. And at a time when all other stores were selling X-Men was their biggest seller. That store's number one seller was Swamp Thing. Oh, that's awesome. And that was just because that particular retailer knew this creator and was just, you have got to read this <laughs> to anybody who would walk in there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, enthusiasm is contagious, as they say. So It is, yep. Being in the industry at this point, did you get to meet some of the people that you thought were some of the best? Did you get to ever meet Ditko? Did you meet Alan Moore? I, I know you did a script, for, but that was after he'd already written it. Yeah, What's your I experiences with the, some of I those people? talked on the phone with Alan at one point about 1963, and that was yeah. a long time later. Mm-hmm. That was the only time I talked to Alan. Uh-huh. I met Ditko up at the Marvel offices, Terry Cavanaugh's office, so uh-huh. I did get to meet him. I met Jack several times in, in San Diego at different functions. Met Herb Trimpey, met Gil Kane. Oh, cool. You basically came in right as these guys are all kind of phasing yeah. out in a sense. Yeah. Still doing stuff, but how was Ditko meeting him? Uh, he's just very quiet. He wasn't a chatterbox. I'd known Robin Snyder, so that was my only connection oh, sure. there. So I was able to say, hey, I'm good friends with Robin Snyder. And he's mm-hmm. kind of like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then left it at that, you know, so it's kind of like, I didn't have any follow up. <laughs> yeah. 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 He did. He didn't give much to follow up on in the conversation. It sounds like, okay. No. <laughs> That's is, funny. Is there anybody that you didn't get to meet that you would have liked to have met? 
I can't think of who there would be that I would have liked to have met, mostly because, you know, I would hear tales of, hey, this guy's pretty cranky. So it's like, I don't want to meet this cranky guy. I'd rather have my lasting impression of them be that they're awesome because right. the comics are awesome. Like uh, Alex Toth or something like that. Yeah, like Alex Toth, I was, I'd heard was, was somewhat cantankerous. And I'd heard that, I mean, John Buscema was at one of those conventions and was like, oh, I could have met John. He wasn't a huge influence on my work. I wasn't a super big John Buscema guy. I understood that he was a talented individual, mm-hmm. but I wasn't like, oh, I must meet John. So right. I didn't. Was Kirby nice? Did you enjoy talking to him? Yeah, for what it was. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was talking to a guy at a in a situation where nobody could hear anybody very well. Oh, I see. So that's really what those situations were. There was nothing that I could hang my hat on and say, oh, I got this valuable insight into Jack Kirby. Right, right. You know, we've talked to a lot of people where they had one of those guys be sort of a genuine mentor, like Howard Chaikin, it was Gil Kane, continuity with Neil Adams and Giordano influenced a lot of people we've talked to. Was there anybody that you actually worked under that taught you things? No. Yeah, you're, you're, you're basically not. self-taught from childhood. Yeah, no, it, well, we're, we were all uh, scattered about. So by the time I was, I moved down to San Francisco when I was 24. That's when kind of my career was getting going. But there was also just, uh, a lot of the guys are like these New York dudes and you're, you're like a West yeah. Coast guy. Yeah, there was a lot of that. And most of the guys that I knew that were in the industry weren't New York guys. They were just kind of here and there. And everything FedEx was going great guns by that point. So we would just be mailing everything back and forth. Right. We didn't have to live in New York. We didn't have to do all this other stuff. So where where were you living when you did Spider-Man? San Francisco. I see. Yeah. So, of course, you wouldn't be hanging out with them like that. Interesting. OK. Yeah. That's that's obviously important. Yeah. 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 And, this uh, is very different from the ones that we we've talked to so many of which grew up in Brooklyn. They were all New Yorkers. They said this yeah. is why we were doing comics, because we lived where comics were. Yeah. And you're a different era than that in a lot of ways. But I, I relate to it more because I'm from Northern California also. So I, it's kind of cool to hear your version of that. <laughs> all right. Sweet. I was just going to finish the the transition Mm -hmm. from Amazing Spider-Man to Spider-Man in Mm -hmm. 1992 and and Mm -hmm. the few issues you you did of that before leaving. Was Mm -hmm. there a difference in your work between the two books? Just that I wanted to learn how to ink, and I hadn't really inked anything before. And at one point, I called up Terry Cavanaugh, who edited a bunch of stuff, and I know that he is just going through a lot of short stories in Marvel Comics Presents. So I was just like, I want to learn how to ink. What can you send me that I could just learn to practice on? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) And he sent me a Namor annual. Right, right. The 1991 annual. Yeah. So I was just teaching myself how to ink. And he also sent me a Steve Ditko human torch story. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So I, I remember that. So was, I got, that, was that fun to ink and, and how, oh, how yeah, it was a gas. The thing with that is I did ink, I inked that with markers and I was like, oh, that's a regret. I should have inked it with the real <laughs> stuff. And so on the Namor thing, I was like, yeah. send me whatever inking tools you have to. And I, 
There you go. <laughs> see what I'm comfortable with. And so I did that job super quick too. They needed it really fast. At one point they had called me up and said, Oh, we're worried about this thing. How many pages can you do? And I was like, send me all of them. I'll do it. Mm -hmm. So that was fun. 1992 is that point of time. And then you're kind of finishing Spider-Man as both writer and artist. That came about because they just needed a warm body again. And I was actually had a proposal in to do Nova. And so I was kind of waiting and waiting on that. Like, are they going to let me do Nova? Because I really want to do Nova. And that was my unfulfilled ambition was to do Nova. And so I was waiting on that. And eventually they gave me the Spider-Man thing as something to do, which was fine. And my house burned down in the midst of doing this Spider-Man thing. So that was less fine. That was the Oakland fire, right? Yeah, that was... East Bay firestorm and ton of houses went up in that fire and Mm -hmm. people lost their lives. We weren't even there. So I couldn't grab anything out of the house or do anything. It was just, sorry, saw our house burn down on the news kind of thing. Like we didn't even know what was going on and Mm -hmm. pulled in there the next couple days later and, and was like, Oh yeah, it's gone. Oh wow. (laughs) And so then eventually they approved Nova, but as a mini series. Yeah. So this was, was this a different proposal from the the first one? I kept wanting to do Nova, but this is an, as an ongoing book, I had a story that I wanted to do and had a bunch of notes for that. And they approved it as a miniseries. And I was like, okay, well, since this is approved as a miniseries, not as an ongoing book. Right. And I had lined up doing Lobo at DC. Oh, okay. Because again, I was like, I'm just looking for something. Uh And so they had said they would give me a Lobo miniseries. So it's like, all right, I'm now kind of committed to doing these two miniseries. Right. But I might as well do this Image Comics thing. Right. I'll do a mini series there too. One and, last uh, Nova and, question. Uh, you were so interested in the character. Was that because of the, the John Bushima early stuff, or was it the later Carmine Infantino? Or what was it no, about Nova? That I was, was I was all in on Nova. I was all in. When that book started, I was there from issue one. And that was one of the few books where I could be in on the ground floor because yeah. most everything else had been going and going forever. Yeah. By the time I got into it. Right. So this was the first book where it's like, oh, I'm in on the ground floor. I'm in with issue one. I was a Nova guy. Like, I'm ready. <laughs> I love yeah. this book. I want to do this book. I yeah, want to work yeah. with this character. That's great. At that point, I didn't get to do what I wanted to do. And it was like, oh, it's frustrating. When the whole image discussion started, how did your involvement in that start? How did that work? In San Diego, me, Jim Valentino... Right. And Rob Liefeld had mm-hmm. dinner with Dave Albrecht from mm-hmm. Malibu Comics. Malibu, there you go. And Rob asked Dave if he would publish a comic by him. Mm-hmm. And Dave said, I publish a comic by any of you guys. Right. And so that was just the seed had been planted. I see. And Rob had decided, I'm going to do something for Malibu and see if the audience that I've got over at Marvel would transfer over to something else, just yes. to see how much of a thing. And they worked out a, a deal of what they were going to be. 
And then he took out an ad in the Comics Buyer's Guide for this new book. I think it was called The Executioners. Yes, that's where he he got a cease and desist, right? He got a, yeah, it had an X in it. But those guys just freaked out at Marvel. They read him the Riot Act. They were calling him up and yelling at him and saying, you can't do this. And and really what we got out of that was that they were really scared that something like that could work. And at that point, it was like... Hey guys, I think there's a possibility here. Let's do it. Yeah. And let's, let's try this, this out and see how this goes. And at that point it was like, all right, well, who's out there? Who could we get on board that would make this really work? And it was like, well, we got to get Todd on there. We're all friends with Todd. Okay, there you go. So he and came in so, more later. There and you go. Todd, Todd got, and he was like, oh, why didn't you guys let me know you were doing this? This is good. And so once he was on board, then he was the most militant and active recruiter of other people you'd ever run across. So he was, oh, we got to get, we got to get Jim Lee because he's Marvel's golden boy. Yeah. Yeah. That was a a big one, a big catch. Because if we could get Jim, then it was like, we got all of them, all the big guys off all the books. You don't have anything left at that point. Right, right, right. That's interesting. So it's basically a little bit of a rebellion test market with that Comics Buyer's Guide ad with Liefeld. But it was actually a dinner with Malibu. And then all of a sudden McFarlane's like kind of leading the charge on making it happen. Yeah. Yeah. And how did you feel about that? Were you like, okay, well, this could work or, well, I'm going to do a few miniseries. So I'll just might as well do this too. Like, how was that? Well, I mean, once it really got going and the discussion really was, we're going to do this, then all the other stuff just kind of fell by the wayside pretty quick. Because mm-hmm. it was like the enthusiasm was contagious in that regard, where it's just like, all right, these guys are definitely into this. Everybody's excited about working on this. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just keep this ball going. Yeah, that's cool. So then it was just, you were just all in at that point. Yeah. So then there is that famous room discussion where DeFalco and Terry Stewart and McFarlane and a couple guys were talking about, okay, we're going to do this. And I, I think I was not there. And you were not there. You and Silvestri <laughs> weren't actually in that room, right? I don't know if Mark was because I wasn't there. <laughs> right. You were there, <laughs> you know? right? So it's like, I so, have no idea who else was in that room. What was your impression? Did they tell you about it after? What yeah, was they like told your... me about it afterwards. Uh-huh. It's like, all right, that's the way we're doing things. That's fine. But it was weird is that they went and they crossed the street and went to talk to DC. Right. And then DC was like, oh boy, we're excited that this is happening, that these guys could come over. And basically we came over to say, and we're not coming here either. Right, right. That's right. <laughs> it was like it was like a call of arms and almost like a declaration of war, right? In a way. <laughs> so yeah, that was some fun. I just find that so interesting that that actually happened. So as far as starting image, also, Wills Portacio was originally a part of it, but then he kind of left, right? He had some family issues or something? Yeah, initially he was going to be one of the partners, and he was one of the founders, Mm -hmm. but he didn't really like the decision-making process of it, and he just wanted to be part of the creative process. I see. So, so yeah, the the more corporate know, stuff. This, yeah, this the setting things up and deciding who who gets to do an image book and who doesn't, who's in and who's not. 
he wasn't really into that part of it. So it's like, all right, we're not going to force anybody. Right. And so then you and the five others kind of stayed. Each one has an imprint. You formed Highbrow Entertainment, right? <laughs> yeah. So right now, this is still under Malibu as publishing, but you guys have your own imprints or you guys have your own little companies, but then it's all it, under it, an it, image. Malibu comics was band, out right? of it and really quick. We were part of them for one year. There you go. Yeah. So by the time I was doing other stuff, like we were gone, did not last long. I with those guys. So then as far as setting up the company, because you had already done and worked in independent comics in the earlier eighties, and also Jim Valentino did some independent stuff back then. You felt pretty equipped as a team to put it together then, it sounds like. Yeah, well, I mean, at that point on Spider-Man, I was doing all the jobs. Right. And on my own, I had written stuff years mm -hmm. ago. So there was really no part of the production that I hadn't done, including printing comics mm -hmm. and stapling them. Mm -hmm. So right, right. Because as a writer artist on Spider Man, now being writer artist on Savage Dragon, that's a smooth transition creatively. Yeah. But then corporate wise, did Jim Valentino have some? Was he a main ingredient of that, or, or was it more of like how did you guys figure out the corporate end of things? It was just roundtable discussions with everybody there, just trying to figure out how we could make this work and what the structure of everything was going to be. Mm -hmm. It was very give and take in, in that regard. And it was sort of decided really early that we were just going to all own our own stuff. Right. And that there wasn't going to be any cross pollinization of, of any of that. There's not going to be any co owners or, mm -hmm. or anything. We would just, everybody, you're on your own. Mm -hmm. And then we decided early on okay, if there are team ups or crossovers, Everybody just owns their own book. So mm -hmm. if a character is crossing over, everybody just keeps their own money on their own books. And the other guy just considers it advertising for their other mm -hmm. for their stuff. So it's like, let's not be suddenly having to own pieces of, of other people's stuff. This is just going to get too cumbersome and we don't want that. And so then was there anything in particular that led to creating its own company and separating away from Malibu? Or was it like, look, we've done a year of this. We're viable. We can save 10% if we just yeah, do it basically. ourselves. That's basically was, what happened. Then. It was that. It was just, what are these guys bringing to the table at this point? And why are we still here? We don't really need them. Mm -hmm. So let's go. That's what that was. So then, even though you guys still had your own separate brands, you still had a bit of a shared universe, though. Like, there would be oh, yeah, crossovers. Yeah. It was shared forever, for a long time. Yeah. So you guys did create an image universe, basically. Mm -hmm. So was there ever like, hey, I want to use your guy for this? Or how, how did that happen? It was very much like that. It would just uh -huh. be, hey, can I use Savage Dragon this issue? Sure. Okay. And my thing with that, even to this day, is... If you're publishing an image comics and you want to use Savage Dragon, the answer is yes. But they should ask you first, right? Yeah, they should ask. I right. mean, it run, run things by me. I mean, there was some goofy ass shit that happened because people just didn't understand some pretty basic stuff. Just about the character or, or how things work and a lot of stuff. If you start working with other people, you'd be amazed. 
how wrong things can get. Yeah. You don't understand my character a bit. That's yeah, right, right. So then what, you would just kind of call whoever had used them wrong and say, hey, maybe next time do this instead or something like that? I think for the most part, we just kind of were like, oh, well. <laughs> right. It's just more fun. Yeah. <laughs> that happened. <laughs> that happened. Okay. Yeah. You know, in my own brain, I kind of reconcile how this sort of thing goes on. You know, whenever you're talking to somebody and they're, and they're telling you about some event that you're aware of, mm-hmm. and you're always sitting there going, that's not a, how that played out at all. Sort of like eyewitness testimony that you realize after a while that, oh, yeah, eyewitness testimony is really unreliable because right. people's memory is just, they're really subjective and it's really bullshit. And on my own stuff, I was just like, my character in other people's comics is essentially eyewitness testimony. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a good way to look at it. Like a Tarantino movie, right? Where it's from different people. Yeah, it's like, eh, whatever. I don't care if you get it wrong, particularly, because I just, I don't even really care. (laughs) And yet it's not like you have to reconcile it in a later story. Yeah, and I didn't want it to be like like that where we're constantly like oh and then i gotta write your story out of continuity and then you gotta do this it's like don't even fucking worry about it just move on yeah just have fun yeah and i love what you did with savage dragon because that four issue miniseries and the series after i really felt like it stands apart i think from a lot of the stuff coming out at that time because yeah there was like hot women in tight costumes there was big buff dudes fighting But the dialogue and the message, I felt like they were real characters talking. I felt like there was a lot of humanization. I felt like you had a real knack for that. I mean, obviously, you still have a real knack for that. But I read it, and it's like, this really stands out. Like, I could sit, I could read this, and I could keep reading this. That's how it felt. Oh, good. I somehow stumbled on that. And just having a knack for just fairly natural-sounding dialogue. Yeah, and they sound like different people. That's not easy to do. And then also I liked how you made him a cop in Chicago, which is just such a cool idea. And then you did it, but it wasn't like totally, you still also commented on some of the problematic things that can happen in the police as well. It wasn't like a one-sided thing. It was like, there was a lot of texture and dimension to just being a police officer, being an honest police officer, but sometimes there are some that aren't. And it was all just done in a really, really balanced way. I'd like that you pick Chicago too. You don't get that a lot. Yeah, no, no. I, I just wanted to be able to destroy a city and not have anybody else get in there. You know, it's like, just let me have my own place so I don't have to worry about what you got going on in your place. Yeah. And Gary Carlson it was kind of from the Chicago area. Oh, yeah. So uh-huh. there was kind of a, all right, well, I'll just use that as kind of a jumping off thing. And also, way back in the, when I had done my fanzines years and years and years ago, those stories were kind of the end of the comics that I did when I was a little, little kid. Mm-hmm. So what I wanted to do at Image was to basically go, well, this is the point that I want to work toward. I want to work towards those stories. Mm. And then I'm going to redraw those stories at some point. And then I'll take it from there. I'll finally be able to continue on from where I left off when I was in high school. Right. And what happened with that was because in those stories, Dragon was like an ex-government guy. Yeah. And so when it came to doing it an image, it's like, what would logically lead into that? Where could I start him? And so that having a police officer, I thought was 
all right, well, I could see this as progressing from this job to that job. That would make some sense. Mm -hmm. That's where that idea of having him be a cop came about was just working backwards. Basically, the idea was I'm not going to repeat the same crappy stories I did when I was a kid, but they'll both kind of be working towards the same goal. And then once, once I got towards that goal and once I got there, then I could go and do anything. Yeah. Eric, have you ever, have you ever had feedback from police, any fans or kids of police or any interaction with sexual officers that read the book or read the book? Yeah, I've had, I've had some, I know when there was a dragon statue that there was a bunch of guys who chipped in and bought one for somebody who, who was in the off. Oh, we got this for the sergeant and stuff like that. There is some camaraderie of, of sorts. That's somebody cool. Somebody would be like, yeah, oh, that is cool. I gave you the shoulder patch from blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, that's cool. That is awesome. Maybe I might be just reading into it too much, but it felt like there were some Marvel references and some of those early Savage Dragons. Like you had this character Arachnid. Yeah. And the thwip with his webbing. It felt like a Spidey reference to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was there was definitely some stuff in there, some meta message. Yeah, stuff meta, yeah. And then the dragon was called the Incredible Hunk by his neighbor. Oh, and then there was one where he fought Overlord, and he punched him against the walls like a big page spread. And then it says Doom with an exclamation point. And when I read that, I'm like, I guess Overlord does kind of look like Dr. Doom <laughs> a little bit. Like, I didn't make the connection until I saw that. The reference there was more... Simonson doing that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because the font. Yeah, the font. I wasn't actually thinking of Dr. Doom, but yeah, he is kind of a Dr. Doom sort. (laughs) And then one that was funny, because there's like commentary. Jim and I were talking earlier that there is commentary on the industry. Like you'll kind of critique like some aspects of the comics industry. You age characters in real time. There's also one Johnny Redbeard's Nixed Men, which is pretty funny. (laughs) <laughs> Which felt like a John Byrne Next Men that commentary. And it was supposed to be like all the characters from all the books that he had just left in a huff. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's Yeah, because I, I mean, I read those. I like John Byrne, sure. But when I read that, I related to what you're writing because I felt some of that. Like there'd be those kind of things going on. Can we just add that Alex's statement there about liking John Byrne is his own opinion, and it does not reflect comic book historians. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Yeah, Jim is not as much of a John Byrne guy. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm totally into it 100%, but when I was a kid, I loved it. I'll tell you that much. Uh, I was was all in on it to a point. And at that point, it was like, oh, it's kind of a dick. What the (laughs) hell? (laughs) Yeah, that's that's my point. That's That's the whole thing, yeah. And then there's some other things. So there's this whole talk about the books were doing awesome. A lot of money was being made. A lot of comics were being read. Fans were loving it. And you guys were basically the rock stars of comics. But there was some discussion of some books were late, some weren't. But those late books were kind of affecting comic shops and sales. So you guys hired Larry Martyr to act as like an executive director for Image. What was the mentality behind that? And what did he end up doing for Image? I think Larry Martyr was supposed to be there to keep the peace within the guys. Because prior to that, we had Tony Obita, who was just like a pal of Rob's. Mm. Kind of the thought was, well, this guy's really in Rob's corner when push comes to shove. So maybe we need somebody who's who's going to be more of an impartial person 
when it comes to just image in general. And I think that was the thought process. I didn't know Larry at all. I didn't know his background. I didn't really know where he came from or anything about it. I was always like, yeah, whatever, guys. Tales of Bean World. That's what Marty was famous. I, I, I knew oh, later okay. on, but and oh, okay. I think we did this stuff, but it's like, what's this got to do with, with us? So Highbrow Entertainment, you're just kind of doing your own thing then, basically, yeah. right? Because your books weren't really known for being late, right? Not really. I had a, one book that was late enough that was returnable, and that was enough of a lesson to decide not to do that again. Right. You're reliably pumping out product all the time, I think. To a degree. I mean, I've had my days. I've had times when it, it hasn't been as reliable as I would like. And that's usually cases of me just taking on too many stupid things. Or, you know, I mean, you still, there still is writer's block that does come. Oh, I see. Fly in the face of, of uh-huh. whatever you want to get shit done suddenly it's like oh by the way we have decided your brain has decided it can't figure this out oh i see yeah Yeah. so now on top of doing your own writing and art for savage dragon highbrow entertainment was also publishing other titles as well right like you did super patriot with uh, Mm -hmm. geffen with art by dave johnson that was in 1993 i think right yep i think yeah you were creating these characters like super patriot mighty man Mighty Man was like a Shazam kind of guy, right? Like a Cap Marvel, but yeah, yeah. Cap Marvel kind of guy, right? And so then, how was working with like other artists and writers on characters that you created? How was that process? I mean, it was pretty simple. We would just sort of talk through. Usually, it would be a situation where where I would go, "Here is point A, and here is point B. I want you to get from this to this." And that was kind of where things were at with Super Patriot was kind of had been mind controlled or something when he showed up first in Savage right. Dragon. So right. it was like, brainwashed, yeah. So it was like, all right, Keith, I need to get from him being controlled by somebody to him being able to be a functioning person so I can have him join Freak Force. Mm-hmm. So get me there, buddy. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Were you basically hiring them as freelancers? How was that yeah. exactly? I was art directing stuff. I mean, I was really a a real editor in that when stuff would come in and sometimes you'd have to talk people off a ledge Uh in a way where Uh they would go and do something that that wasn't very good or it was always complicated. Well, this is awesome, Eric. Thank you again for this candid interview. Stay tuned for part three of the Eric Larson interview, where we're going to talk more about Image Comics and beyond into the present state here at the Comic Book Historians Podcast with Alex Grant and Jim Thompson. Cheers. Cheers.